In our last episode... After the sudden murder of Joe Adams and the theft of a local reverend's brand new Chevrolet at the hands of a young gang recruit, Charlie Berger's criminal disruptions seem to have pushed the law to its limit, and authorities plan to arrest him for good. A Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger By Gary Deneal Chapter 21 Jar Like an Explosion On the night of January 8, 1927, State Highway Patrolman Lori Price drove to Shady Rest after watching a movie in Marion. In the few minutes he was there, Price talked with Steve George, who insisted on introducing him to his wife. She was knitting in the East Room. Near the fireplace in that same room was a man in his mid-twenties who appeared to be drinking. Perhaps because the caretaker made no move to introduce him, the patrolman had the impression that the man was no friend of Steve's. One account had it that the gold-toothed Bulgarian told Price the fellow might be shot if he didn't leave soon. In the West Room, lying on an army cot, was a younger man whom Steve called Clarence. Although he was supposed to help guard the place, the boy, Steve concluded, was quote, playing hell doing it. I left and came toward Marion, Price said later, stopping at Paul Quarter's barbecue stand. I was there when I heard a jar like an explosion. I left pretty soon and went home. It was 11.20 when I got home. The jar-like-an-explosion that he dismissed so easily at the time had destroyed the cabin in which he had chatted with George a few minutes earlier. Around the same time, another explosion destroyed the power plant. A couple who lived nearby saw the flash from the fire and herded their children into the basement. A neighbor of theirs, J.R. Ritchie, told reporter Elva Jones that around 11 o'clock he had heard six or seven shots, and that about ten minutes later there was a blast accompanied by a flash. Running to look out, he saw another flash that seemed to come from the window of the cabin's east room. A party of fox hunters in the woods nearby also heard the shots and explosions. Dousing their own small bonfire, these men managed to hide in the woods until almost dawn. The Marion Daily Republican gave a sardonic, almost humorous account of the incident, but for one of the men, Charles Christian, those cold morning hours offered no light-hearted recollections. A former friend of Berger, he was shaken, but continued to hunt at night. All the witnesses who testified at the coroner's inquest, held at the Osmet Funeral Home in Marion on January 12th, Recall seeing a REO truck parked west of the cabin the morning after the incident. Nearby was a pool of blood. One of them, Lori Price, thought the body found in the west room might have been dragged from the pool of blood and thrown through the front door. Four bodies were found. As with the body found south of Marion in the abandoned farmhouse a few months earlier, identification was difficult although it was assumed almost from the first that Steve George and his wife were among the victims. In Steve's case, a belt buckle with the initials SG was uncovered. His gold teeth also helped in his identification. Because he had heard Steve call one of the occupants Clarence that night, 
and because this particular fellow sounded like Ray Roan, Price assumed that Clarence Roan was among the victims, and said as much to Ray, who was in the Marion jail at the time. Because a storm had knocked down the power lines, Ray could not immediately call Heron to determine whether his brother was dead or alive. It was also believed at first that Jimmy Sims from Harrisburg was one of the four, but Sims turned up a short time later and said that he had been at the cabin shortly before the explosion. Accompanying him out there was Bert Owens, also of Harrisburg, who had remained. Because Owens did not reappear in days to come, his aged father, Elijah Owens, testifying at the final inquest held on January 26th, expressed his belief that Bert was dead. The remaining body was finally identified as that of 18-year-old Santos Elmo Thomason of West Frankfurt. Any possibility that the body might have been that of Clarence Roan was erased when Roan was arrested in a Heron pool room on January 29th. When he read in the newspaper that one of the bodies was that of Elmo Thomason, Leo Simmons remembered that day in Golconda when Elmo was talking to himself as he walked. He was holding a shotgun by the barrel, and with each step he hit the stock against the sidewalk. More astonishing yet, the troubled youngster kept muttering to himself that he was going to kill somebody. Simmons did not catch the name. The murder victim was one of six orphaned brothers, the father having died in 1915, the mother in 1919. Overdose of laudanum was given as the cause of the father's death, although it was rumored that Ewell had been shot in the forehead. One very old woman remembered seeing his body laid out in the coffin. She believed part of his forelock covered the bullet hole. The ashes of Elmo Thomason were placed in a baby's casket and shipped by rail to Reevesville in Johnson County, where his grandmother lived. It was bitterly cold the day his tiny casket was lowered into the earth of the hilltop cemetery overlooking the hamlet. Near Elmo's grave stood his father's tombstone. After two sessions, the coroner's jury finally reached their verdict that four people had met death by fire at Shady Rest. They did not guarantee positive identification, nor did they attempt to assess blame. The public blamed the Sheltons, and Orrin Coleman tended to agree, at first. They had, after all, tried to bomb the place from the air, and several times their guns had riddled the barbecue stand, causing the patrons within to hit the sawdust, and prompting Berger to line the walls with sheets of steel. One of those patrons was Willard St. John, one night I stopped there on the way home, always did every time I go in late at night. I was sitting there drinking a beer when Berger said, If I was you, St. John, I'd believe I'd drink up and pull out. I got word through the grapevine that the Shelton boys are going to come by and shoot this place up. I said, I'm already drunk up, and I left about half of that beer. When I got up where I turned off to go home to Dikersburg, those boys come by and shot that son of a gun. Next day I went by there, they'd shot every window out. By word of mouth, the story spread that the Sheltons and or members of their gang had driven a truck, complete with gasoline tank, into the woods near the cabin. Down a convenient ravine flowed the gasoline toward the log structure, soaking it at the foundation. A tossed match sent Charlie's dream into oblivion, as bullets had done for those within. Those few who had reason to doubt this version were not talking except for Lori Price. 
At the first inquest, Price had given a spare account, but off the record he was heard to remark that while driving back to Marion that night, he had seen Charlie Berger, Art Newman, and Connie Ritter driving toward the cabin. This curious bit of information might have been part of the record had Price been able to testify at the second inquest. Meanwhile, Berger had learned that Price was holding regular conversations with Jimmy Madison in the Marion Jail. For reasons known to the gang leader, this was not an encouraging sign. Apparently, word got back to the patrolman that he was in disfavor with his old pal Charlie. According to Joe Schaefer, Price begged Orrin Coleman for protection. A man noticeably lacking in personal warmth, Coleman did nothing to ease the patrolman's fears. At the urging of Arlie O. Boswell, however, he did insist that Price keep his distance from Jimmy Madison. The speed cop's darkest fears were not unwarranted. A gregarious man, he was often seen at Berger's place, drinking a beer and talking with the boys. There and elsewhere, he would perform wheelies on his four-cylinder Harley-Davidson motorcycle for the entertainment of the mostly young onlookers. In the summer of 1926, after directing traffic at the Hard Road League baseball games at West Frankfurt or Marion or Harrisburg, he would tell umpire Charlie Walker, I'll see you out there. There, of course, meant shady rest. He was always out there getting him a home brew because they didn't charge him, Walker said. Apparently, they didn't charge him in a lot of places, because former Burger man Riley Simmons said he saw Price in a hundred different nightclubs around the area. He had had his beat on Route 13 between Harrisburg and Carbondale since early November 1923, when the highway was nearing completion. Because of his open, easy manner, Lori Price had many friends. Some of them had elected him commander of the American Legion in Marion in 1926. Arlie O. Boswell had been his predecessor. Only because the Germans had captured him was Price denied a Distinguished Service Medal following the war. An odd fellow, a mason, an ex-coal miner, and everyone's friend, this string bean of a Kentuckian expected to be a father soon. Boyish at 36, Laurie Price seemed to have everything going for him. But did he? Looking like a question mark riding his motorcycle. As one fellow described him, Price came in for much of the criticism that hounded Arleo Boswell. Namely, that he was too often seen in the company of gangsters. Boswell's stock response that You don't get your information from Sunday school superintendents would have served the patrolman as well. Furthermore, Price could defend his questionable associations by citing his record. In 1926 alone, he had recovered 19 stolen cars. Only by hanging out with Berger and members of his gang could he have achieved such results. The problem was, though, that simply being there, he had access to information denied such straight-laced upholders of the law as Orrin Coleman and Jim Pritchard. The darker possibility, that he was actually aligned with the Berger gang in the stolen car racket, as Art Newman later testified would naturally have made his position all the more tenuous. Asked why he had committed certain crimes, a man who had once served as Berger's bodyguard replied, Because I had one foot in the grave. Had he been asked, Lori Price could have answered the same. Eleven days after the Shady Rest explosions and killings, six days after his testimony, 
Lori Price was missing. Also missing was his wife, Ethel, a school teacher who was on leave during her pregnancy. Their disappearance did not become known until the patrolman's stepfather, John DeFour, who lived nearby and fed the couple's chickens while they were away, discovered that the telephone lines to their house had been cut. Missing too were the Charlie Christians. Finding their alarm clock still ticking and food still on the table, concerned neighbors feared the worst. So also did Arleo Boswell. Friend and fox hunting companion of Charlie Christian, Boswell had been hunting with him one night near the ruins of Shady Rest, when the tip-off came from a man unknown to Boswell that both men were marked for death by the burger crowd. Because of his official position in the county, Boswell couldn't flee, but Christian could and did. At the time, however, many believed that the Prices and the Christians had been abducted at or about the same time. Not until Christian appeared years later in his law office in Michigan did Arleo Boswell know for sure that his old friend was still alive. In some of the worst weather in years, Coleman and his deputies searched for the Prices throughout the county. The rain and sleet that marked the third week in January was followed by an ice storm. Tempers, strained by the inclement weather, were not much improved by the superficial search made by the state authorities to find the couple, after leads in Williamson County petered out. The Marion Weekly leader demanded that the state offer a substantial reward. State Representative Wallace Bandy of Marion introduced a resolution in the Illinois House calling for such a reward. The resolution was approved quickly and unanimously. Something about this latest outrage had angered and sickened the public, as the killings of Ward Jones, High Pockets McQuay, and the others had not. They wanted results, but as January ended, they were treated instead to another example of Berger's arrogance, this time in a Quincy, Illinois courtroom. Accompanied by two federal men and Art Newman, Berger passed through Marion the morning of January 31st en route to Quincy, where the Collinsville mail robbery trial was to begin that afternoon. Originally Springfield had been given the honor, but the authorities finally decided that the Quincy Federal Building with its single stairway would be easier to guard. Also, the streets in the capital afforded an easier escape route should friends of the Sheltons attempt to rescue in the event of a guilty verdict. That both the factions were there in force was a rumor believed by almost everyone and especially by the men guarding their two prize witnesses, Berger and Newman. Such fears were not unfounded. Returning to their room on the third floor of the post office building around 1 a.m. on February 1st, and in the company of seven detectives, Art and Bessie Newman were fired upon from a building across the street. Wild though the two shots were, they at least should have shaken the dapper little gambler, but when Newman took the witness stand later that morning, a broad smile shone from his face. Clearly pleased to be of help to the government, and at the same time to strike a blow against his former pals, he told how Carl Shelton had asked if he wanted in on a good thing. That good thing was the Collinsville mail robbery. On the morning of January 27th, 1925, Newman stated, a telephone call came from Carl. They had just pulled the Collinsville job and needed an alibi. Ora Thomas was being buried that day, 
and Carl thought it might be a good idea to drive down to Heron to pay their last respects to an old friend and fellow anti-clansman. At the same time, they would neatly provide themselves with an alibi. Newman testified that he drove Carl and Earl Shelton and their attorney Joe McGlynn to Williamson County. Since they arrived too late to attend Thomas's funeral, they paid a visit to their friend Delos Duty in Marion. They also stopped at the Marion Jail to see two other friends, Sheriff George Galligan and his deputy, Hezzy Byrne. Following the visits, Newman said, he drove the two brothers and their attorney back to East St. Louis. He testified that three weeks later, the proceeds from the robbery were divided in Charlie Berger's home in Harrisburg. Newman related his tale with such relish that Judge Louis Fitzhenry at one point had to admonish him to quit smiling. After Art Newman completed his account that afternoon, Harvey Dungy took the stand. The rum runner from Marion testified that at about 6 a.m. January 27, 1925, while driving a taxicab in Collinsville, he had seen Carl and Bernie Shelton near the town. Because he alone could place the two near the scene of the robbery, his testimony was especially important. The last of the state's witnesses to take the stand was Charlie Berger. In his closing argument, defense attorney Harold J. Bandy gave a brief description of Berger's demeanor that day. You saw Berger swagger into this room, stick his thumbs in his vest, and sneer at Carl Shelton from the witness chair. You saw the glint of vengeance in his eyes and the joy he took in testifying against these men. Aside from the theatrics, which began with a Howdy Shelton's as he passed his three former pals on his way to the witness stand, the main thrust of Berger's testimony was that $3,600 of the $21,000 taken in the robbery had been divided in his dining room by Carl Shelton and Charlie Briggs, another of the alleged robbers. At the time, Berger stated, Carl told him that Bernie was the driver of the getaway car. In addition to Delos Duty and Joe McGlynn, defense attorneys Harold J. Bandy and Edmund Burke called to the stand William Oversee, the manager of the East St. Louis Taxicab Company, for which Dungy claimed he had worked the morning of January 27th. Oversee testified that while the Marion man had worked for him in 1925, he had not done so in January, as Dungy had claimed. Mrs. Pat Pulliam said that at Shady Rest, Berger and Newman told her and her husband that they would get the Sheltons on that Collinsville job. Thinking better of their careless remarks, the two shot and wounded the Pulliams and killed their friend Wild Bill Holland a few nights later near Heron, she added. Next time, turning the corpse over, he noticed a badge with the number 78. Thank <laughs> you.